Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda and Danny Abeljabar. What's up, my friend? How are you? Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. So, update. I finally saw Book of Mormon. Really? That's a pretty old show. (laughs) After all these years. Yeah, I finally saw it. And I must say that this was maybe the most entertained I've been for two hours ever. Really? Like more than one of those any things. movie, any video game, the most entertained you've ever been? For for a two-hour period, I don't think I've ever been more entertained during those two hours while watching while, than watching The Book of Mormon. It was so fun. It was so funny. The music was so good. It's been so long, and, and I'm like the last person to see this play. And I thought that I was going to be disappointed because it's just there's been so much hype over the past 10 years since it came out. I was like, there's no way this thing's going to live up to expectations. And now I'm like, man, why did I wait so long? I want to see it again immediately. Well, if you do end up going to see it, I would be interested. I haven't seen it myself either, actually. Well, when you're in New York, if you want to go see it, I would recommend seeing it once you're, if you're, you know, spending a couple days in New York, which I'm sure you will Mm -hmm. soon. But I would see it again. It was, it was that much fun. But it's just so, there's something aesthetically, uh, Something that's aesthetically pleasing about a bunch of guys with matching, like, dorky, uh, white-collared shirts (laughs) with ties, like, singing and dancing. I don't know why. I don't know. Uh, I don't don't think that's something I I really follow but <laughs> it, uh, it's just it makes it makes perfect sense like those guys are, are Trey Parker and Matt Stone are geniuses when it comes to uh, just creating gold and uh, that definitely is gold but it has inspired me to get back into our drawing board and complete that Broadway play that musical oh for the Shaw <laughs> the, his, the history I don't know we have to do a historically themed musical i think that's what's finally going to push us to like the next limit we write a musical like um like charlie did Mm -hmm. uh, like dayman from always sunny in philadelphia yeah this could go either really really well or really really bad have you ever heard (laughs) have you ever heard of um of the producers the the play yeah so in that one for those who haven't they um they intentionally try to write the worst play ever uh, and it's about like Hitler. It's called, it's like one of the songs is like springtime for Hitler in Germany. It's absolutely hilarious. And it becomes like a giant hit. Uh, so like I said, this could be either really good or really bad, but I, I love the idea of doing a play, uh, where, you know, <laughs> Nixon and the Shah get together. Well, I think we can do, I think a good topic. We got to pick the topic. 
I think we do one on the CIA. Okay. And we do it on CIA coups in like the 1950s. Okay. So I think we base it off, we do, we write a musical. Is Kermit on, Roosevelt going to be a part of this or? On Kermit Roosevelt <laughs> and the overthrow of the Iranian democracy in the 1950s. And we just make a, a spectacular play. I mean, it could be good. Or it could be really we bad. Have, we have the CIA <laughs> dancing and singing. Man, you know it, it probably we could probably get sponsored by the CIA themselves. <laughs> uh, I'm going to ask ChatGPT <laughs> as we do this episode to write me a script for a musical about Kermit Roosevelt um, overthrowing the Iranian what was it the Shah <laughs> no not overthrowing the Shah overthrowing the Iranian president president thank you installing the Shah he installed the Shah as the as the prince you can write a song about the king of kings because um, the Shah took the title king of kings that's what we were talking about last episode with the <laughs> yeah uh, exactly. Shaw with his with his uh, I guess this could be a good segue into the Red Army faction because we were talking about the Shah last episode how he goes to Germany and this is a uh, parade and one of the it's a diplomatic parade and he had just took the title King of Kings so he is mm-hmm. now yeah. at the level of King Cyrus yeah yeah so you can you can write a spectacular song about that. Well, so ChatGPT uh, is going to help us because uh, this is the actual quote uh, from ChatGPT. I wrote, write me a script for a musical about Kermit Roosevelt overthrowing the Iranian president, hoping to get some gold out of this. And ChatGPT tells me, I'm sorry, but it would be inappropriate to write a script for a musical about a fictional overthrow of a real world political leader. First of all, not fictional. Second of all, uh, okay, so additionally, Kermit Roosevelt was a real historical figure who was a CIA officer and played a role in the 1953 Iranian coup d'etat, but it's not appropriate to use a real-world political events or figures as a subject for a musical or entertainment. Oh, that's <laughs> bullshit. You ever hear, hear <laughs> fucking Hamilton? I know. <laughs> I know. I know. You can't, you can't do a play about the 1953 Iranian coup where Kermit Roosevelt stages fake protests to overthrow Mohammed Mossadegh. Isn't that golden con? That's that's gold. That's a hit right here. It could be. It's going to generate interest automatically. Right. Leave us the only challenge. Want us to write that? (laughs) There's only one challenge here. I don't have any type of musical talent or uh, theater experience, so I'm going to be going in like Tobias uh, Fuque from Arrested Development. Mm -hmm. I need to learn everything in a couple of days. Maybe we can recruit. You know, with with conjunction with with Chat GBT, some actual musicians who can write these songs. Yeah, because the only musical experience I have is um, transforming the song from Rent, Seasons of Love, into a drinking song. <laughs> oh you know, man! Five hundred twenty-five thousand six hundred loggers, <laughs> five hundred twenty-five thousand bottles of beer. That's the only musical. Uh, endeavor I've ever gone through. So that's going to be a challenge. Right. Subscribe to Patreon okay. if you want to hear the uh, full length song. The full, the full length. <laughs> All right. Let's get into it. Let's get into the actual, yeah. 
meat and potatoes of today. So this is going to be part two, would you part call two. it? Part, part two, two, maybe part two of three. Uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to get through all of it. It is dense stuff, but also really fascinating. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, we will see. But we're going to continue our discussion on the Red Army faction, also which known was as the a Bader Meinhof gang. The Miter, the Biter Meinhof, the, the Biter, excuse me, Biter Meinhof gang, which was a really crazy organization. And maybe you can give us a quick recap of what we covered last episode. Sounds fine. Um, okay, so in the last episode, we introduced you to the origins of this radical left-wing terrorist organization that formed in West Germany in the late 60s and early 70s called the Red Army Faction, or according to the West German government, the Bader Meinhof Gang. In a lot of ways, uh, the story of the RAF is, you know, I think super similar to a lot of the other radical left-wing groups that sprung up uh, around the same time. Uh, Though many of these radical left-wing groups around the world, they were created under very different contexts. You know, they were products of their own local struggles and histories. Uh, Many of these types of groups were formed and led largely by the immediate generation that preceded World War II, right? So everyone talks about like the baby boom, right? Well, in the 60s and 70s, the baby boom became the student boom, right? All these kids that were born right after World War I became adults and started having opinions about things and didn't themselves survive or go through the immediate, you know, carnage of World War II. So, you know, this is the backdrop, the context by which a lot of these left-leaning um, uh, uh, revolutionary uh, groups start forming. Now, this generation had a ton in common, even if they were on totally different edges of the planet. Mostly, they rejected fascism, authoritarianism, and broad right-wing politics. And they coupled this alongside of their specific struggles, you know, of their respective homelands. So each one had their own little flavor, but generally they just kind of melded the two ideas. And they create this created a real strong desire for revolution uh, around the world, uh, especially among young people. And in this case, armed revolution in most cases. What makes the RAF, the, the Red Army faction here, such an interesting group is, hang on, sorry, it's a motorcycle. Fucking Puerto Rican motorcycle gang. All right. What makes the RAF such an interesting group, I think, is, is how much they did with such a small headcount. For some context, the IRA, and, I'm, and here I'm talking about the provost, not like the original IRA, uh, this is from like 69 to 2005. They were the Irish paramilitary group that tried, you know, forcefully to end British rule in Northern Ireland. And that group had an unknown number of members, but estimates put it in the 10K plus range of human beings that were involved. The Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, which was founded in 1966, they also used military tactics and terrorism to promote uh, agrarianism and anti-imperialism uh, in that region. And that group had somewhere between seven and 10,000 members. You know, back here at home, the Black Panthers Party, and that was founded in 66 also. You know, they advocated for class struggle and were famous for, you know, open carry cop watching and, and they fought against de facto segregation and, 
you know, U.S. military draft during the Vietnam War. The Panthers, they had something like 5,000 members at its height in 1969. So, you know, for groups like these and with memberships like those, I think it's kind of unsurprising to hear about all the kinds of crazy shit and impactful things that these groups were able to do or that they could likely have pulled off. I think what makes the West German Red Army faction very interesting is that these guys pulled off arson, kidnappings, bank robberies, uh, attacked embassies, hijacked planes, uh, linked up with major left-wing groups around the world, and they only had 22 members. It's interesting there's only 22 members, so it's just like a, a troop of people. It's like um, a gang of your best friends, or like your, your yeah. second outer circle of friends. That's it. And I think, and I don't know, you, you can you can tell me if I'm on the right direction. So I just finished, well, I didn't finish reading this book yet, but I'm, I'm reading The Strange Death of Marxism mm-hmm. by by uh, Paul Gottfried. And, mm-hmm. and basically what he does in this book is that he, he makes the case that we're living right now in a post-Marxist world, that mm-hmm. the old communist movement, the old socialist movement that was, that was you know, largely founded by Marx... Um, was discredited after World War II, the economic system at least. So the the old Marx, which the old Marxist philosophy, which was mainly just an economic philosophy, didn't really touch too much on culture. Like Marx himself had a lot of commentary on culture, but mm-hmm. when it came to like the the concept of socialism, it wasn't or Marxism. It didn't really comment itself on culture. Um, it transformed in the 1940s, 1950s. Left-wing movements in Europe transformed from you know being largely uh, working-class focused on things like workers' rights to more culture issues, where they became kind of catch-all movements against things like right-wing authoritarians, Correct. Uh, you know, fascism and, and hard right-wing politics, mm-hmm. along with things like imperialism, um, you know, racial injustice, and it becomes like this catch-all. Uh, movement that kind of encapsulates encapsulates all that. It, it just it swallows goes, up the entire left. <laughs> yeah, it it's, it, yeah, exactly. And it, and it kind of, it recognizes market forces as something necessary for stable society, just for economic prosperity. But the new left that emerges from this, the, from this period is, is focused on kind of rectifying a lot of mistakes rather than, yep. you know, the scientific approach that Marx had previously taken. Right. It's, and it's of course, socio- like, rather than economic. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like this group, the RAF, they are, I don't know if it's exactly accurate to say they represent this because most of these, they're they are definitely 100% unique yeah. in this matter where they are focused on revolutionary change through force and violence, yeah. unlike a lot of other groups. But at the same time, they represent such a small number of people. And you have to look at it the major communist movements in Europe at the time were in Italy in the 1940s, at least were in Italy and France and mm-hmm. also Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had large communist parties. Yep. Like France and Italy. But none were, of them ever caught on. None of them ever won. Well, they were, they the were catching seats. on after world war two. Most of France, they recognized um, the Soviet union as like the rightful liberators of Europe. For you sure, know, but they didn't take the entire data. parliament, though. That was the thing, you know. Well, there was the point I'm trying to make is that there was a larger communist presence in France and Italy than there was in Germany. For if sure, you look at German like if you look at Germany's um, 
like well, communist. West Germany, let's be very West clear. Because all if of East Germany at, was de facto communist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But if you look at their, if you look at like West Germany's um, elections, I think the Communist Party had about 4% of the vote. Yeah, it was nothing. If you yeah. look at, mm-hmm. if you look at, um, you know, France and Italy, it's significantly higher. So they're representing a much smaller um, movement. But I guess we have to explore more of what more they represent. Do they, do they represent kind of like this old school Marxism of revolutionary change? Even, you know, kind of throwing in some Bolshevism of like, like some some the the kind of the brutal um um layer of 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 kind of marxist socialism that bolshevism develops that we need to do it by any means necessary kind of um i feel like they represent that more but i think it's an interesting thing to really think about as we talk about kind this, of um, i mean they, they certainly align themselves with like figures like mao and ho chi Minh, just to give you some context Right. Yeah. Because those folks were around during this time period. Right. Um, this is during the the great leap forward in China. You know, this is during uh, the Cultural Revolution in China. Right. This is during the Vietnam War. Uh, so they're they're aligning themselves with the uh, with whoever is the opposite side of the U.S. at this point, partly and rightfully, in my opinion, because the U.S. is just straight up napalming innocent civilians in their villages. And that's fucked up. Right. And again, I, I spoke about this in the last episode. You know, this is this is a, a group of people who who grew up and who have a particular. Sorry. Who grew Motorcycle? up in. Yeah. This is a group of people who grew up in post Nazism who have a particular, you know, um, a, a reason to want to push against Nazism. Right. And for them, it's authoritarianism and Nazism are basically the same thing, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they kind of punch it up like higher than their weight class. You know, they, they've got in their first generation of these folks is just 22 people, you know, and, and they're mostly the interesting generation. Also, they, they happen to have all of the smarty pantses. So Ulrika Meinhof and, um, and uh, Gudrun Enselin are both two incredibly intelligent, but very, very Marxist Leninist like style writers, the kinds that it's, it's a little bit hard for me as not a professional, uh, on Marxism and Leninism to really pin down where their, you know, uh, political ideology falls, but, you know, just reading it from a, from a very normie perspective, you know, they, they do kind of fall along that, that Bolshevik line, you know, do things by any means necessary. They really take that, you know, revolution by any means necessary they take that very very seriously and they do so with only 22 people (laughs) and with such a small representation in the population of you know the german people that this changes later and and we'll get into that in a moment but but yeah does that kind of answer the question (laughs) yeah so there's 22 people in Mm -hmm. this organization um what is i guess where do they spring up out of? Let's let's recap that. Like, where does where does where does this group come out? You touched on it for a second. They come out of the student movement. Um, right. You know, a lot of the student movement at this time in in Europe was in Germany was influenced by the Frankfurt School, um, where you know they they're kind of credited. You know, the Frankfurt School is kind of given this conspiratorial a conspiratorial lens when 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 uh, viewed at them, mm-hmm. as in they. Um, 
they're one of the main agents of change in, in left-wing politics in the in the 19 you know 40s 50s 60s and these were we these are groups that were you know originally influenced by them but they seem to go on a different direction from 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 what they're preaching right um as in like you know modern left cliches they're they're going back to uh you know nihilist type roots um what where does where does their origin lie from cool yeah i mean we, we can we we kind of go through a lot of that in the prior episode so if you haven't listened to that i definitely recommend it because you'll get a lot more detail there but just for some background for this particular conversation you know um in the 60s student politics in west germany went from like very pacifist to very violent and that epicenter was centered on or around west berlin and the RAF was one of those groups that came out of that time period. You know, this group was primarily headed by, by a guy named Andreas Botter, who was kind of like a rough and tumble chauvinist. He was a car thief and also kind of dumb. He was a middle school education kind of guy. Um, and he got romantically involved with this uh, uh, woman, Gudrun Enselin, who was one of these smarty pants leftist university students. You know, later they go on to gain Ulrika Meinhof, who is even more of a smarty pants than Enselin, in my opinion. She was like a leftist magazine writer for whom you know, she'd basically become the mouthpiece of the group. And that's part of the reason why they were able to get their message out, you know, uh, and gain so much popular support was through Meinhof and the fact that she was just such a smarty pants. Uh, and all of these were super fascinating people. Um and if you want to learn more about them, you're going to have to probably listen to the last episode because there's like a whole episode about them. Um, but these groups, uh, like the RAF, believe that basically capitalism is the same as fascism and imperialism. Uh, and particularly in West Germany, they had a special kind of hatred towards what they called authoritarianism, which for them meant literally any and all authority. So any, any authority is a fascist and any fascist is a Nazi and when you come from West Germany, you know, or any of the Germanies, Nazi is a word that you want to avoid at all costs. Um, being that that generation, they had this very, very strong incentive to fight against what they thought was like a resurgence and normalization of Nazism. And the reality in West Germany was that it really was full of Nazis. Um, you know, a lot of the high-ranking ones, you know, or the particularly heinous ones had been tried for their crimes or sent to jail or put to death. Um, many of the, just the, the, like, normie, regular Nazis remained. Like, they, they remained in positions of power, and that reflected pretty clearly in the way that, the uni that a lot of these institutions in West Germany were run. Like, in particular, the, the university institutions, right? Which is where these uni kids get really, really upset. Um, the turning point, I think, comes... You know, when the Shah of Iran comes to West Berlin on a diplomatic event. And that was the last kind of scene that we talked about in the last episode. And it was really crazy. Definitely recommend that you listen to it. But, you know, this trip doesn't sit super well with a lot of the leftist and young people in West Germany. And, you know, because the Shah was correctly seen as a fascist dictator and a puppet of the U.S. The US regime. And, and, you know, the U.S. was currently napalming innocent Vietnamese people. So they weren't, you know, they didn't really have a really good rep among the, you know, the young people in West Germany. So this largely peaceful protest breaks into an utter bloodbath as these pro-Iranian counter-protesters, who were filled mostly with Iranian secret service, start beating the shit out of all of these Western German protesters with two-by-fours. Like, legit. It's cr crazy, crazy story. 
And what's craziest about it is that not only did the German police not stop this from happening, but they actively participated in bludgeoning the protesters with their own truncheons and arrested anyone and everyone that they could. Ultimately, at the end of the day, one German police officer ends up shooting and killing a West German student uh, protester. His name was Benito Onzorg, uh, who would become the first martyr of the German leftist movements, including the RAF. So that's now, now we're all caught up on the last episode. <laughs> so the Shah basically represents he, he's just like a symbol of imperialism to them. Right. Um, he's a he's a blatant puppet dictator mm-hmm. that's installed. Mm-hmm. In the 1950s, at the same time, he represents not only the brutal dictatorship that's in Iran, but he also represents um, just like the symbol of you know capitalism's influence on you know and on right. um, on different societies and and right. um, it even you know the, the Vietnam War is going on right now, and you know that that even kind of falls under him. So right. this is why the um, why he's such a polarizing figure in the mm-hmm. 1960s to especially to to um you know and anti-imperial leftist movements yeah there's a there's a lot of conflating happening here and and when i read this i read this from the lens of somebody that's in sitting in 20 the 2020s right uh you know i, I have hindsight is 2020 here it really feels like these kids you know who are in their 20s here are just like looking for anyone and anything to be mad at right um and you know yeah it, the iranian shot sucked right he's he's a piece of shit but does he have anything to do with the vietnam war no <laughs> you know like literally nothing so but that but there's a lot of conflating that goes on right so this just becomes this like very angry moment um and they just organized this protest the pro that the, the shot coming itself wasn't necessarily the thing that 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 really set this on fire it was the the establishment in West Germany's allowance of, you know, these pro-Iranian protesters, counter-protesters, just straight up bludgeoning them to death in one case was the reason why they got so upset. It confirmed to them their suspicions that Nazis run their government. Because remember, authoritarianism is like authoritarianism is Nazism, according to these kids, you know? So they're, so they're, they're one of the two. Yep. They're they're looking at this and saying, hey, they invited this dictator to come by. We decided to protest them. We already knew that there was a bunch of Nazis running the police force. And then they came out and they showed their Nazi faces when they let those people beat up on our people. And then joined in on the beating up. <laughs> you know? So that it, it really was, you know, kind of like a a moment for them. And and in the aftermath of the Shah's visit. Pretty much every leftist student group was on fire. You know, like everybody's mad. Everybody's super pissed. And in March of 1968, two members of one of these groups, uh, it was called Commune Eins or, or Commune Number One. Um, they they set up a lot in Berlin. They set up a lot of these like communes, right? Where it's like an apartment full of like, I don't know, 15, way too many people <laughs> that all live together and like try to do like a socialist thing together. Yeah. Um, and just to give you some context, yeah. Berlin... I'm sure a lot of you guys know Berlin was basically like um, the East Village in the 1980s. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> yeah, it really was. So they, they were doing this thing. Anyway, Komuna Eins is kind of important, but not super, super important for the Bader-Meinhof group. Just wanted to bring them up because two of these guys from, from this group, 
got put on trial uh, for, quote, inciting arson because they put to, they put out a leaflet that was calling for the burning of department stores in response to everything that was going on. So their, their response to the Shah coming and then the counter-Iranians, you know, beating the shit out of them and then the, the German police beating the shit out of them was, yeah, we should just burn down department stores. That was the reaction that they had. And they wrote this leaflet and then they, you know, they got in trouble. Um, but the courts eventually found that while the leaflet did objectively call for a criminal action, it couldn't be proven that the defendants had any actual intention to incite arson. Um, so the leaflet was just judged to be like a satire, which I think part of it was. Um, but part of it wasn't, you know, like, like we're, I think these, these student movements at this point are starting to flirt with the idea of, okay, these peaceful protests aren't doing shit. We got to do something. We got to actually do something, right? It was a scary time. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So, the RAF, the Red Army Faction, the Bader-Meinhof gang, they see this leaflet and they say, hold my beer. So after this trial, the RAF decide to do their own arson attacks on the department stores in Frankfurt, and they were able to get their hands on enough stuff to whip up some incendiary bombs, uh, and they made them out of plastic bottles and petrol and alarm clocks, some batteries, and a detonator that was held together by like some sellotape and plastic film. Really rudimentary stuff, right? They don't know what they're doing, but they knew enough for how to figure out how to make this thing blow up. And... They then drive down to Frankfurt. They go to the Kaufhaus Schneider and they make sure that they're the last customers in there and they planted the bombs uh, and they set the fuses for midnight. 
at midnight, they, you know, explode and there was a fire and, and it caused significant damage to the stores. Uh, but nobody was actually hurt. Uh, I think there was like something like 200,000 or something like that dollars worth of, of damages, Deutschmark dollars. So there's a lot of money. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I just think it's kind of crazy that, <laughs> I mean, again, I, I didn't live in this time period, so it's hard for me to put myself in their shoes. I, I'm really trying to figure it out. There's a lot of fucked up things happening. They feel like, you know, nothing that they do peacefully is working out. And so they just decide a really good way to stick it to the man is to burn down a department store. So the the cathartic release is just arson. Right. For all these tensions that are rising up because you're cold war, you're young, um, and you're trying to prove a point and, and you're, you're trying to just channel your rage from, I guess, the previous events that are happening mm-hmm. and uh, the show that you're a real movement and it just releases into this cathartic burning of this department store. Right. That and it's, it's just has so no government random. or any type of affiliation. Yeah. What does it symbolize? Is there like some type of symbol? And it uh, symbolizes capitalism. And like, if you really want to go yeah. down the Marxist Leninist route here, it's like, oh, this is a, this is a symbol of the capitalist decadence of whatever. And we have to burn it down to prove that like capitalism is the reason for all of our problems or something like that. It's just such a, like, I don't know. I'm having trouble because again, I'm not a professional lefty. And I'm having trouble following the thread here, but just imagine the mental gymnastics that these guys are, are pulling off. And, and really, from my perspective, I just see they're having some serious mental tr- plight and they're fi- trying to find a release, to your point, the cathartic release, right? And this was, you know, this was the first idea that somebody threw out there and the RAF decided to, to go for it. Well, why not? It's just so random, though. You know, it's like, how does this help? It's just, it's just weird. It's very weird, from in my opinion. But, you know, obviously this, this catches some police attention. The Frankfurt police get a tip-off, which led them to the arsonists. And a few minutes later, uh, Botter, Enslin, and others who were involved in the firebombing, they, they get arrested. Uh, they and um, also their car was searched mm. And the police officers ended up finding a screw in Enslin's handbag, which was the same screw as one of the incendiary bombs. Um, in the car, they found like parts of clocks and like hot bulb section of a battery powered detonator, like a bunch of sticky tape uh, that was used to wrap around the bombs and, and other just materials generally for making a bomb. And, you know, basically there was evidence everywhere and they got caught red handed. So it just kind of shows you like they, they weren't really planning ahead, right? They, they, it seems like just some type of sadist project. It was just weird. Um, Everything is to, weird to, about to it. To be hyperbolic, but yeah. there's like no re, there's no like legitimate target. I mean, I'm not saying there's a legitimate target to bomb anyone no. or under any circumstance for right. political violence. But like, I mean, at least like, I'm not I'm not condoning the IRA, but the IRA's movements um, made sense. You know what I mean? Like where? Right. Well, because they had a target, right? It was the British. Had, like military, they wanted to kick the British military out of Northern Ireland. Period. Well, then they also bombed civilian buses and things like that as well. Yeah, of course. Um, but the you know, like the Russia, the revolutionaries in Russia, the Bolsheviks, or or just like the nihilist ones in like the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, 
um, you know, they always took on like, you know, secret police or politicians and things like that, or people who worked for the government. Right, but these guys um, are fighting. They went an after ideal. the czar themselves. These like, guys are the fighting an ideology by burning a house yeah. down. Yeah, right? they're like they're like fighting against capitalism or fascism by burning a department store down. They're not like like stating these people are the people that we want to go after. Like this specific group is the people we want to go after. It's like I want to fight this ideology, <laughs> which is just nuts. You know. It's, it's, it's crazy. Anyway, so there's evidence everywhere. And they get caught. And after the arrest, Botter and the gang. They're not professionals. No, they're not at a ragtag group of just angry university kids at this point. And Botter. Like did, Antifa now. Like Botter, modern day. Yeah. Modern day Antifa. They're, in some ways, they're probably way less organized than Antifa is today. Like these these guys, they've literally not at all organized at this point. At this point, they will get organized, but we'll get to that. <laughs> um, so Botter gets uh, arrested. They all deny uh, having taken part in any of the attacks, even though there's abundant evidence against the you know to the contrary. But they all just you know keep real tight lipped and refuse to say anything. They get caught anyway, so they had to spend time in jail. So they're in jail right now. In the meantime, kind of like on the side. You know, we're, we're talking a lot about like these left wing movements. Well, there was a bit of a counter movement, a right wing counter movement happening. There around, always is around the same time. Right. So for every Antifa, there's going to be a Proud Boys or whatever. Right. <laughs> um, so some German citizens thought at this time that all these commie leftists were going to start a civil war. And, you know, these groups start popping up to support counteraction. And in April 1968, a man named Josef Bachmann, uh, who was a product of, you know, one of these right-wing counter-extremism groups, attempted to assassinate um, a political activist by the name of Rudi Dutschke in West Berlin. Uh, so recap for those who didn't listen to the last episode, uh, this guy, Rudi Dutschke, he was like the poster boy for the leftist university student movements. And he was like the, like the actual literal godfather of, of Gudrun Enslin's first son. Um, so important dude in the story, at least. Anyway, uh, so the shooter runs up on Bachman in the street. Uh, excuse me. Bachman, the shooter, runs up on Duchka in the street. And he calls him, uh, uh, allegedly, he goes, hey, you filthy communist swine. And then he shoots multiple shots in the face on Duchka before running away. And he ends up taking a shit ton of sleeping pills and, and attempted to take his own life, but ended up getting gunned down by some police uh, before that happened. Duchka. Like the, the, it sounds like the groups that tried, uh, that uh, killed Archduke Ferdinand. Yep. <laughs> yeah, he botched this one pills, too. cyanide pills, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. Except he didn't actually kill Duchka because Duchka survived this attack. But he was seriously injured and required some major surgery. And had After he shot in the face... He got shot in the face several times. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he had lasting brain damage from this event. and that, Low caliber, caliber gun. Yeah. Well, you know, that's all they can get their hands on. <laughs> anyway, so this was martyr number two almost for the left of West Germany, Rudi Duchka. And news of this attempted assassination spread super quickly throughout Berlin, and this kicked off kind of a bit of a protest at the technical university uh, where there was already supposed to be a student union meeting planned 
and the protest turned into a full-blown riot uh, at the Springer Printing Press, which is one of the one of the major um, uh, uh, printing presses in the area that was you know putting out a lot of uh, let's just call it mainstream media, <laughs> and they were violently like you know burning their kicking down the gates and like burning down shit, just being it was everything you can think of, <laughs> um, and this violent riot was also violently put down by the police. So now we've got a second instance. Now, obviously, this this one has some context. The the protesters here weren't being peaceful and they were burning shit, right? But the police were being extra brutal this time around, uh, you know, using water cannons and all kinds of crazy shit and arresting literally everyone. Uh, fun fact, Ulrika Meinhof was there at the time and allegedly participated in the protest and almost got arrested. Uh, but somebody had, one of the police officers had recognized her as being this like journalist and just like let her off on a pass because she was just a journalist being there to do. They're out in force today, Henry. I can hear them. Yeah. Meinhof was basically you all, there. You can and, all and hear this, them. Meinhof was there and this cop recognized her as a journalist and let her off like with a you know slap on the wrist going oh that's that's Ulrika Meinhof like she's just here to to cover the you know shenanigans that are going down uh anyway events like these I think they they provided like a profound impact it didn't immediately create like new membership for the RAF but what it did was it started helping popular opinions for the group and groups like it because when you look at it from you know, a news perspective, especially when you looked at the the situation with the Shah, it's like, imagine, imagine here in the US, right? Imagine we decided to let, you know, Kim Jong-un come to the United States and like, I don't know, go to, go to a, you know, a meeting with Joe Biden. And then, and then they went to the, you know, they went to go see the Book of Mormon together, <laughs> right? Like that was the planned event. Like how pissed would Americans be that we're like letting this dictator guy come here, right? So obviously there's going to be a protest. Hopefully that's a peaceful protest. And let's say it is. But then a bunch of North Koreans, like pro-North Korean counter-protesters, start beating the shit out of Americans, right? And then like the New York City Police Department starts also beating the shit out of the Americans. Like you imagine, like even normies in the United States would be like, yo, fuck these guys. And they would kind of feel like sympathy for these left-wing groups. The same thing happened again after this Duchka shooting and after that riot. They're like, oh, look, it happened again. This Duchka kid gets shot. They have a, a, a protest about it, and then the German police get all excited about it and you know start beating the shit out of them again. So it creates a lot of, like, not new members, but just public support for these leftist groups. And that kind of becomes important for, like, how and why these folks were able to get away with as much as they did, especially with as few people as they had. Okay, so all this shit happened. The Duchka shooting happened while um, you know the, the the main members of the Bader Meinhof gang were actually in jail awaiting trial. So later that year in October, uh, the four uh, RAF that were accused of arson from the Frankfurt department stores um, that that trial kicked off and. This was like the audience that that the RAF actually wanted. If there's one thing that these kids were smart about, it's like good PR, right? 
they knew how to work a crowd and they they knew that there was going to be reporters there. They knew that there was going to be a big showing, especially after all the shit that happened with uh, Rudy Duchka. So they were going to make a big scene and a big spectacle about it uh, to really get more public support and hopefully get off scot-free. So Enslin finally admits to starting the fire with Botter. And this is after months of the group being like just keeping their mouth shut. And they say that the reason why they did it was in protest against, I'm going to quote here, in protest against people's indifference to the murder of the Vietnamese, uh, but that they didn't intend to harm any individuals. So (laughs) we burned down a department store because we're mad that the U.S. is burning down is napalming the Vietnam, the Vietnamese people. Which now it starts to make a little bit more sense, but it's still fucking random, right? And then Enslin argued that basically the action that they took, um, that, excuse me, that they had taken action because, because just talking about the problem was useless and that without action, that, you know, without starting this fire, you know, they wouldn't have been able to change anything. And so, you know, this arson attempt or this successful arson was... Uh, an attempt for them to change the world. That was the argument that they were making. Now, I'm sure that them and their lawyer did a much better job at explaining that (laughs) in court than I ever will. Um, But that's the argument in a nutshell. So the defense argued that the true motive for the arson was not just protesting against Vietnam, but also just generally a rebellion against a generation that had tolerated crimes during the Nazi era and, you know, a society that was founded on exploitation and injustice and oppression. So very, very left-wing talking points here. The defense ended up requesting a lenient sentence, saying that prison wasn't a good place for the defendants, but that if they were sent to prison, it may be concluded that prison is the, I'm quoting here, prison is the only place for a decent human being in society. They're basically making the argument here, Henry, that, there aren't bad people, and if you put them in jail, that the authorities that put them in jail are the bad people. That was the argument that they're making. It's pretty convincing. I mean, you know, they already knew that they had a lot of public support behind them, right? Remember, after the Shah visit and after the Duchka shooting, a lot of the German public is like, kind of like, hey, you guys are being kind of Nazis. Like the, you know, the system, the authority is being kind of like Nazi right now. And they're like, hey, yeah, we burned this thing down, but, you know, we had to do it because we want to change the world. And if you put me in jail, you're the bad guy. <laughs> Which is just kind of a crazy argument, but, you know, that's that's the one they went with. Um, and, and the public really ate this up. Um, they bought it. And, and this was thanks to, in no small part, by the contributions of Meinhof, because Meinhof at the time was a colonist for this left-wing magazine called Concrete, um, and, you know, she visited the defendant, Enslin, in prison, and she wanted to write an article about her and about the, the group. And she was honestly very impressed by, by her and, and the others, so much so because they had a lot in common together. The difference between Meinhof and Enslin, though, was that Enslin didn't just talk the talk, she walked it too. Like, she actually went and did something, and that was something that Meinhof really admired. And Meinhof's account of her conversation with Enslin was actually never written uh, because in Meinhof's own words, if she had published the conversation between her and Enslin, that her, en- Enslin and the others would literally never get out of jail. So this is how radical 
Enslin was that a radical left-wing writer wouldn't publish the contents of their conversation, just as a little bit of context. So she was just reading the room pretty well that if you put this guy, let's just keep this person away. Like if the average person sees what this guy has to say, they're going to think we're all crazy. Right. So we got to keep gotta this poison up. off of us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I, okay. So the, back to the trial, as cute as an attempt it, as it was to try to get the gang out of jail, you know, by saying, Hey, you're the bad guys. If you put me in jail, uh, they failed and they were sent to prison anyway for three years. Uh, which was actually more than most of the observers of the trial had expected. And the presiding judge, his, his, his like decision, decision said that the defendant did out of moral conviction, you know, so the Vietnam War or Nazis in West Germany. Otherwise, it would not have taken them seven months to confess to their crimes, which is kind of a solid argument, right? Like if they had did this for some moral conviction reason, they probably would have came out and said it like right away. Right. We did this because of the Vietnam War and because there's mad Nazis in West Germany. Right. So I think the, the judge kind of saw through that bullshit. Anyway, they served 14 months in prison for arson and Botter and Enslin were released on probational terms. So they, they get released on probation and it required them to do social work, which just stupidest idea ever by whoever's idea this was, because they began working with a uh, a bunch of like young offenders in state run institutions. So like kids, <laughs> they start working with kids <laughs> and they gather a large following of like these, you know, these like runaway criminal lefty kids. <laughs> that will, that's what we'll do. We'll, we'll put the, the radicals and uh, you know, as punishment, we'll let them radicalize other people. I, I know it was just the kind of this we'll give them access to just so their stupid. demographic of who joins them. Yeah, it was just so stupid. And and you know, what's funny is that like you know they were seen as exciting and adventurous by these young people. I mean, look, these are the guys who fucking burned down a department store in the name of like Marxists and Leninists. You know, that's kind of exciting, right? If you're like a young criminal. Anyway. It adds a flair of romance for to sure. your crimes. For sure. It's like, I'm not doing it without reason. I'm a victim to the system. Right. Exactly. Anyway, later, the, the federal high court, uh, they reject uh, the RAF's appeal for clemency. And um, at this point, they decide to go underground. And instead of going back to jail, they fled to France, which uh, they ended up staying there in the apartment of a French writer and revolutionary. Remember, there's a lot of, as you pointed out earlier, Henry, a lot of commies in France. Um, so French writer and revolutionary uh, Reggie Debray, and, and that was in Paris, and they stayed there for several weeks. And, you know, they, they got a lot of visitors there. Some of the folks that were there uh, that came and visited them were folks that they met in jail in Germany, and they were asking them to come back and, like, you know, start the revolution in Germany. And eventually they decide to do that. They decide to, to go back to Germany and, and do that. And back in Germany, Bader gets caught in a stolen car, which uh, 100% on brand for him. Uh, go back and listen to the last episode to find out why. But he just gets caught. Uh, and what ensues after this is just madness. So Meinhof and Enslin cook up this plan to break him out of jail. Remember, Enslin's still on the run. Meinhof's fine because she wasn't technically a part of any of this. Um, Botter's caught. He's in jail. Enslin's still on the run. They get this idea to bust out Botter. So Meinhof makes a request to the jail and says, hey, I want to interview Botter 
and I want to do the I want to do the interview at the uh, cent- the German Central Institute for Social Questions in Berlin, which is a place that she had some connections with, uh, and and it was on the pretenses of like writing a study about arsonists or some shit like that, right? She was like, I want to do this thing about arsonists and the Bader Meinhof gang, and uh, we can only do it at this place, <laughs> not in the jail, and somehow. I don't fucking know how, but they granted them this. And so Bader was taken out of jail and sent to the Institute for what was just supposed to be a few hours for the, for the interview. There, two RAF members, Astrid Prohl and Monica um, Baron, uh, excuse me, Bear Barrage, um, they came in and played in clothes with guns and they busted them out. And they were like, obviously armed police officers there that were supposed to be like, you know, watching him but they got him they got him out and uh only one uh institute employee uh george linke was seriously injured uh, by a gunshot that day but but it was less about like the the casualty and more about like the fact that this was so embarrassing to the police that now the hunt for these guys is like 100 percent on we all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. So these, so Meinhof and Insulin are basically like Bonnie and Clyde. Kind of, yeah. They're both like smarty pants. That, they like, give that vibe off. Like, feminist you know lefty women that want to you know change the world and and stuff like that and i'm sounding like a fucking chauvinist right now but but truly that's like who they were uh and they were totally the brains and botter was just kind of the the weird fucking you know he was kind of the i want to call him the muscle but he's also kind of a dumbass i don't know i don't really like botter so much but he his name is on the gang the botter meinhof gang so we got to give him some credit anyway Crazy story, right? They just straight up break him out of jail because the police are stupid. <laughs> yeah, it is crazy that they that they're able to do pull this off. And again, they're not like professional criminals. I guess I guess at this point though, they they kind of are turning into professional criminals. Kind of at this point, they they got away with two like major crimes, right? Arson and like uh, what is it called when you break somebody out of jail? <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, okay. So at this point, the RAF, all of them. Including Meinhof, by the oh, this is an interesting fact. So Meinhof, all she had to do was pretend to be surprised that you know the RAF came to break him out of you know jail. 
that's all she had to do. Just like cry and pretend that she had nothing to do with it. And people probably would have, would have believed her. But for whatever reason, she decided to flee with them after, uh, after they broke, broke him out of jail from that institute. So now they know that she's a part of it and now she's fucked, which side story. She also had two kids and like this tenuous relationship with her ex-husband and, and lots of crazy shit. It's not a very happy story for her family, uh, for this choice that she made, but now she's hundred percent fully in fully committed to the revolution, I guess. Anyway, everyone's on the run. All the RAF, including Meinhof. Now they're probably officially the modern Meinhof gang. And um, they're on the run. And from June to August of 1970, uh, about a dozen of these RAF members, including Bader and Enslin and Meinhof, they all travel to a Palestinian Fatah camp in Jordan. I'm just going to pause right there. They go to Jordan to get basic training on weapons, shooting and unarmed weapons combat, hand grenade throwing, explosive production, Battle tactics, all that shit. They went to terrorist camp. <laughs> and now, and um, allegedly they didn't really fit in. No, no, they didn't. You know, but but it did give them you know the the background that they needed. Uh, you know, to start being organized in West Germany. Also, fun fact: it was the um, a milestone in modern terrorism because for the first time, one terrorist group trained a different terrorist group who had totally different goals and nationalities. So it's just like terrorists training terrorists for no good reason. This is the first time. They don't have the same goals. They're totally different. And, you know, to your point, they didn't really fit in because, you know, there were a bunch of liberal lefties from Germany, from Western, from Berlin, very specifically. Anybody who's ever been to Berlin will know what I mean. Berlin is a very liberal place, and they're going to Jordan to train with Palestinian liberation front people, <laughs> you know, very conservative group. You know, they, they, let's, they did a bunch of shit that, that didn't go so well with, you know, their, their terrorist trainers, like, like co-ed housing. They insisted, insisted on staying in the same rooms, co-ed males and females. And that's not so bad for us, you know, but like for uh, fundamentalist Muslims, that's not cool. Yeah. Um, that's haram. Even more haram than that. Uh, sunbathing in the nude. These guys were in the in Jordan, in the desert, like just, you know, nude sunbathing, which is normal for Europeans, but like so fucking mind-blowing for a, you know, like a Sunni terrorist group. Can you just imagine that? Just think about that for a second, Henry. Imagine going to train with like, I don't know, it's not the same, but like going to train with ISIS, right? Yeah, but like PLO was not... It's not the same, but... They're not the same thing. They're more of a nationalist secular movement than than a religious yeah but they're a religious movement but they're definitely yeah they're muslims and they're more conservative and they're not used to you know nude females um being so liberal with taking their clothes off so yeah i'm sure that was definitely um an issue between the two yeah i mean they basically almost got kicked out of terrorist camp for doing it yeah but um but they got the training that they needed uh somehow (laughs) And they returned to West Germany to, I don't know, fight the power for real this time. So I got a question for you, Henry. What do all terrorists need to do terror? Money. Yep. Ding, ding, ding. And that's exactly what the RAF started with when they got to West Germany. 
So on uh, September 29th in 1970, 16 RAF members executed the, quote, three strikes plan in Berlin. And this is when they robbed three banks at the very same time, like simultaneously. And they stole more than 209,000 Deutschmarks, which I can't really get a good figure on that, but it's like three to four million US dollars in today's money. Not like a ton of money, but they robbed three banks at the very same time. That's either some really good training that they got or some really bad bank security. Probably probably a little bit of both. None of them died. None of them got caught. Not initially, at least. Nuts. Now they're like a professional group. But again, there's still like only like 20 of them at this point. Right? 22 of these people. And in the early 70s, you know, what what resulted as a result of this this bank robbery was you know, a, an extremely violent game of cat and mouse between the German authorities and the RAF. As a matter of fact, in one point, uh, a 17-year-old kid got pulled over on a regular traffic stop and I guess just got nervous because, you know, he's kind of lefty and, you know, he's thinking, ah, oh, they're going to think I'm an RAF guy and they're going to arrest me for no good reason because, you know, you know, reasons. It's kind of like, you know, when, 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 when black people here in the United States get pulled over, they might feel a little bit uncomfortable because they don't know if this is going to be the last time they're going to live, right? So these this young German kid is pulled over and he's getting a lot of the same feeling and he decides to run away and he gets shot and killed and this kid was had nothing to do with the RAF, never never even a part of it, not even close. And that gets out in the news and and obviously there's, there's more public support for the RAF now. Uh, but that was just one of many, many situations like this where you know, the, the West German authorities and the police were just using very, very heavy-handed tactics to try and curtail this group of 22 people you know, that at this point is now bank robbing, breaking out of jail, um, you know, arson, you know, a little bit of murder, <laughs> uh, and we'll go on to do more things in the future. But this, it wasn't looking good for the authorities. And later that year, the RAF launched what it called the May Offensive. And this is when they got real, real dangerous. You know, four people died in six bomb attacks and more than 70 were injured in the May Offensive. One noteworthy bombing was on May 11th in 1972 where Botter, Enslin, and, and a few others, uh, they did a bomb attack on the headquarters of the 5th Corps of the American Armed Forces in Frankfurt on Main. On this particular occasion, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Bloomquist, uh, along with 13, uh, was killed and 13 others were injured. Um, so they're straight up bombing U.S. military installations in West Germany at this point. Which is like a, a step above <laughs> where they were at before. Yeah, now they're dealing with the Godfather. Yep. Now they're, now they're having some trouble. But I mean, like, at this point, things start escalating really, really high. Uh, you know, the, the Federal Criminal Police uh, Office, they start intensifying their search for, you know, these people. I guess I, I guess it must be kind of tr trying to find a, a needle in a haystack at this point, you know, because there's just so few of them. But, you know, they, they're just punching whale above their weight. And what they decided to do on May 31st in 1972 was, was called the Water Hammer Operation. I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm loosely translating that from the German. Um, but 
This is where they took thousands of police officers and custom officials and even some military there. And on almost every federal road and motorway, uh, all at the same time, simultaneously, they shut everything down. They set up roadblocks and they caused major traffic chaos. And initially it didn't lead to any arrests, um, but it caused absolute mayhem. And now here goes an, yet another public opinion reason for, you know, um, people in the in the community being like, yeah, these Bader Meinhof guys aren't so bad and, and the police fucking suck, you know. Imagine blocking off the entire country's roadways all at the same time. Just try and catch these guys. Put me in any inconvenience, I'll I'll turn on you. I mean, it's like the entirety of West Germany, right? That's like a big, that's a giant area. Huge. Must have cost them so much fucking money. And it, it, it initially didn't result in, in them leading to any arrests. And I think, you know, if you did, they did public opinion polls and some very large percentage of the of the population, uh, over fifty percent was was either um, sympathetic towards them or outright held the same beliefs as them, and part of it was just like these blunders from the from the police. And you know, I don't, I don't think we have enough time for this, but I definitely want to talk a little bit about the police structure in another in another juncture um, because there's some interesting characters there. Because there's this whole other side of this cat and mouse game. It's not just the RAF, but it was also like the authorities. Um, and I want to talk about how they ended up catching them in the next go, uh, which is a fun and interesting story. I want to talk about the time that they spent in, in jail, the torture that they went through. I also want to talk about their global reach, you know, because they have now have uh, connections with the, uh, the PLO, among many other um, terrorist organizations. There was there was kidnappings that happened after this when they were in jail. Uh, basically, the RAF movement gets way out of hand, uh, and you know, kind of outside of their control once they're in jail. But um, I'd like to talk about all of that in in maybe a future episode. Well, let's let's do it. So, uh, where are we going to uh, put a pin in it from here? Yeah, I think so. All right. So, um, yeah, it's crazy. You know, another thing I was reading is that. Um, you know that Putin actually, when he was when he was in stationed in East Germany, yeah, he was a Stasi. As a Stasi, mm-hmm. he was actually uh, providing them with safe houses and things like that, and and guns and weapons. Yep. Mm-hmm. And this only this information actually only came out super late uh, in the game because you know I, I remember when I was reading this book and I was thinking about it like, okay, how did they get to Jordan? How did they escape to Paris? How did they, where did they get the guns? Somebody had to have been helping them. Turns out. Yeah, it seems like there was a state backer involved. Yep. Turns out it was the uh, East German government. <laughs> yeah. Well, who else would it be? <laughs> yeah. So they're so they're actually you know they're they're less liberal neoliberal and mo- way more. I mean, they reject those notions <laughs> yeah. of uh, completely, and they're they're just full on allies with the soviet union being a proxy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah it's um it's a crazy story it's it's a story that not many people like i you know before you brought this up to my attention i didn't really know anything about the biderman gang or um political terrorism in in, in germany post-world war ii because you think of 
post-World War II Germany and it's such a stable place. Yeah. I mean, that's, or West Germany, like, oh, it's stable. It's, yeah, of course, you know, there could be a war that breaks out at any minute. But for the most part, you know, the Germans are orderly people. They have a strong industrial base. Their economy is booming. But this is like one of those stories that really falls under the radar, much like the groups in Puerto Rico mm-hmm. in the United States. Yeah. The, the um, you know, the, the, the radical nationalist groups that, um, are, are striving for Puerto Rican independence. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting how these movements go under the radar, but it seems like almost every country um, is not... There, there's no country that's immune to some type of either ideological radicalism or nationalist radicalism that fosters within, within you know, society. Right. So, it, you know, I think this is kind of part of our... I think we started this with talking about political separatism in Spain and, mm-hmm. and seeing what other modern states uh, post-World War II have these kind of these these uh, movements that that um, you know want some type of revolutionary change um, whether that be independence or whether that be you know Biter and Meinhof it seems like it's it's kind of directionless and it's in its name. Like you don't really know what they're after. Like, what do they want out of this? They just, they want, they want the, the death West of German capitalism to fall and the, and, <laughs> and the unification of Germany under as a Soviet bloc state. Like, as though, no, those... it wasn't even that complex. It wasn't even that specific. It was just like very generically. We don't like capitalism. And we think that all authority is fascism. They They were like, anarchists kind of just like very directionless very very directionless so yeah it's it's cathartic release Mm -hmm. but it sounds like but it became very uh organized and they did some shit they did some shit in terms of just like there's 22 people in it so you know by the early 1970s do the ranks grow Yes, or is it still definitely. just that core twenty-two people? Definitely, and that's that's something I want to talk about in the next go, right? Like the core group, the the, the what they call the first generation was only about twenty-two members, right? And that included Bader, Meinhof, um, and Enslin, among many others. But once they go to jail, at the point that we cut off, you know, the ones that were the RAF that that didn't get caught start increasing ranks, and they grow, but they don't grow to like you know tens of thousands of people like like some of these other groups that I talked about like it's not like the IRA or like the Colombian um the Colombian group that that I talked about or even or even the Panthers that had like 5000 members at its height we're talking about like dozens of people like a few hundred at most you know across uh uh West Germany um it it never really rises to the level of a very large headcount organization but the impact that it has the global impact really is nuts. I mean, we're going to talk about, you know, foreign embassies being raided and people being kidnapped from those and used as political uh, uh, prisoners to to get to bust these folks out of jail. We're going to talk about whole airplanes getting hijacked for the same purposes. I mean, it gets very sophisticated and very crazy. And, and, you know, at this point, the, the folks, you know, Botter and, and Enslin and, and Meinhof, they're all in jail. 
right? They have no connections with any of these folks anymore. And it like takes on a life of its own. Um, but still small and mighty in that respect. And I, I don't want to like glorify what they're doing. I, I totally disagree with everything they, <laughs> they stand for, but you know, it's, it's just fascinating. Absolutely not. Yeah, it's just it's crazy that they weren't able to catch them or or strangle a baby in the crib. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, in you know, if that was in the U.S., the FBI would have found these people almost instantly. Yep, you would think, or maybe not. You know, the FBI the FBI doesn't have the greatest track record, but well, sometimes the FBI just would. lets them happen. Yeah, well, they let them happen, or yeah. they get confused about their informants, and it's. It's interesting, but um, next episode, let's explore the East German police. I'm not the East, the West German policing situation, and maybe that will spread more light into for sure. You know how they were able to do all pull this off. Mm -hmm. Um, All right, so let's wrap this up. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Bro History. Um, if you like this show, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support our show. And make sure that you uh, take a look at our Patreon. So in Patreon, we have ad-free episodes, and they're early released. So um, chances are there's a couple episodes in our Patreon that you haven't seen yet. So go there and check them out. And um, Danny, any concluding words? Nope. All right, guys. Peace. Peace. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.